0: Uh, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning. Anyone have any irrational fears in here this morning? That's what we're gonna talk about, okay? Some are, look at Clink. Clink's like, I'll just, I'll just lay it out there. Here's what's, here's what's unhelpful about that term. Um, whether it's rational or not, if it's real to the person, that's an unhelpful title, right? Uh, it just, it almost makes you feel a little bit more awkward if you're like, well, that's irrational. That's an irrational fear. Oh, thanks a lot, you know. I'm experiencing this fear and now you've just labeled me as irrational. Maybe the, the more helpful thing would be, are they common fears or more uncommon fears? Okay. Let's take a little poll here. Okay. This is a place of truth. We can open up with one another, right? Um, so if you have a fear of the dark, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're afraid of the dark. Okay. Yeah. A couple of you. Uh, how about, um, a fear of height? Anyone afraid of being up high? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fear of pain? Come on, this is a place of honesty. Look at Joey, big tough Joey. You don't want to mess with Joey. He's like, all right, I'm I'm gonna keep it real. It's I've got a fear of pain. Uh closed in spaces, claustrophobic. Yeah, shot the hand up quick on that one. Um needles. Anyone? My wife's hand would be up on this one. How about spiders? Anyone not like spiders? Okay, whose job is it in the household to kill the spiders? Raise your hand if that's you, yeah. Some of you are just like, no, that's my role. Yes, mostly men. That's just, that's the, the reality of it. Um, alright, here's a couple of uncommon ones. Now, phobia comes from, from the Greek word fear. Okay, that's what it is. So when you name it, you're supposed to name it with like a Greek word in front and a Greek word after. So if you're fluent in Greek, you're going to nail these. But I, I, found a few that, um, that we can have some fun with here. Anyone know what, what, what this one is? Any guesses? Nope, fear of chickens. That's right. If you're in the band and you saw the, the PowerPoint ahead of time, you do not get to talk at all right now. All right, this next one. Anyone know what this one is? Very common, but not here. OK? Of course, it's the fear of chopsticks. Now, imagine if you had these two fears, the trauma of going to Panda Express. I mean, all those people ordering orange chicken and chopsticks flying everywhere. It's a It's a nightmare. All right, how about this one? I've got a few of these in my household. People with this fear. Anyone know? Fear of work. That's exactly right. We've got a, we've got a a pastor ministry leader in the back who's, uh, who's got some of the Greek down here. And then this one, I just apologize right now. This is the fear of sermons. Okay? So if that's freaking you out, listen. Way to, way to face your fear today. Courage to be here. You're like, you just gotta come and do one of these. Now, I got thinking, you know, what is it if your greatest fear is being asked what you're afraid of, right? So maybe that would be called phobophobia, and you can have a lot of fun with that. I'm a phobophobic. What? You know, uh, it's also known in a more technical sense um, as this word here. All right. Um I bring up fears because when you think about your fears, okay, um, fears speak really loudly. When you when you look at what am I really afraid of? What are my deepest fears? I'll tell you what you're starting to get into. You're starting to get into what your what your hope lies in. You're starting to get into what you love most deeply because maybe your fear is that being taken away. So when you when you start to really think about your fears, or you have a reaction and you go, "Wow, that word cancer that I just heard that isn't even diagnosed to me or my family, but someone else." I'm realizing that is a deeply fearful word to me. And if you stop and start to listen to that, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to see some things about yourself. I'll tell you what else does it is freedom. You can actually listen to your heart by assessing how you spend your free time. You can listen to what's really going on in your life if you just look and you track, where does my free money go? Now, that's a very odd term, uh, but but money that isn't already accounted for by PG&E and the landlord and your gas tank, right? Where, where does that free money go? Where, where does your free time go? The freedom of choice, where, where do these things point to? It's a little bit like an audit of your inner life. Now, here's, here's the thing. All of us have some stated truths that we live by. If I were to ask Dwayne Hood over here, my friend, i say, Dwayne, why are you alive? I would have a sense. I know Dwayne well enough. Dwayne would produce an answer. He would say, this is my purpose, This is my reason for living. Dwayne, what's most important to you? Dwayne would probably rattle off some things. These are the things that are most important to me. All of us have some, some fundamental things that we say these are the stated truth of, of things. But then there's the reality that, that, that comes alongside. It's a little bit like a stated purpose statement at Subway, right? We aim to please the customer. And if you're there right then not being pleased by someone, you kind of see the sign in the back and you realize your experience is different from that. So we have stated truths, um, but, but then re- realities. And, and maybe by listening to our deepest fears and tracking how we use freedom, we would actually be able to hear what the what the real truth of the matter is on a given situation. Freedom of speech illustrates this. This is kind of a, a random little illustration. But, but um, if you ask someone, is truth important? You say, yeah, tr- truth is important. I think most people would say, yeah, that's an important thing to me. Are you a truthful person? Yeah, I I'd like to think of myself as a truthful person. Study after study shows that as anonymity goes up, in other words, the ability to be invisible truthfulness goes down. So if you're able to post things behind an alias, and you're pretty convinced no one will ever track you back to these comments, um, A, things get a lot more brutal. Some of you have noticed that online. But also, uh, study after study shows that, that people's honesty goes down. When they're not going to be held accountable for what they say, they feel free to a lot more free with the the truth. So do you see what I'm saying? I'm stated as a truthful person, but the actual reality, when I have freedom of speech, when I think I just can be free with no accountability, there's a different reality going on. So I'm just saying that looking at our freedoms, looking at our fears, actually begins to kind of pull open our chest and go, in. what's really going on? What do I really value? I know what I say I value, but what's really going on with that? Paul is teaching about freedom. And I want to just show you the flow of chapter five so we can kind of stay on pace here. Here's what he says. He says, you've been set free from Christ. Look at, look at five one. Remember? If it's for freedom that Christ set us free. He came to, for, with, a, with a mission and it's for freedom that he called us to, to walk in. So that's, that's the first idea. Now, um, if you're, if you're new to church or if you're new to the Galatians series, you ought to ask this question. Free from what? I don't know if you ever had someone come to you and say, hey, are you saved? I love to do this with people. I've had people on airplanes go, hey, are you saved? And I've worked with college students for a long time. I love college students. I love, the, I love the, um, just the excitement and enthusiasm. And I just go, uh, saved from what? And sometimes in their zeal, a brand new Christian um, and certain traditions really throw that word around a lot. Hey, you've got to be saved. Are you saved? I got saved, right? And when you fire the question back, you go, well, saved from what? They go, well, I don't know exactly, but I know you're supposed to be saved, you know. And it's fun to just push back. Some have said, well, and they've given me this great gospel-centered Jesus, uh, you know, exalting answer. And I go, yes, I am saved, if that's what you're talking about. Go back to Galatians 1 with me for a moment. Most of you will probably have to turn a page to the left. Um, Galatians 1, remember Paul lays out the gospel what he's preaching, what he's standing on, what the Galatians were veering away from, he lays it out right at the very beginning. Look at verse 3. He addresses this as to the churches of Galatia, and then he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God Of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I know sometimes we can gloss over the fact that grace and peace are in there. But the gift of grace and the gift of peace that are from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you see how loaded that sentence is? I mean, that's the gospel, right? It's being given to you. That's the gift of eternal life being given to you. It's from God the Father. He accomplished it in Christ Jesus. We receive it by placing our hope and trust in Christ Jesus. And we're being delivered not only from this present evil age, but if we were to look at a more robust picture, it's to eternal life. It's from our sins. It's being delivered from the enemy that death is. So it's important, even as we talk about this idea of freedom, that we keep in mind, we don't get to hijack the word and just, and just kind of apply it in this milky way to our current situation. Oh, I've got this dead-end job, and I'm pretty sure Paul's talking about freedom from being in this cubicle. That's where we can go. That's where our brains can go. Freedom, yes, and we can read a verse and go, oh, I've got a, I've got a new life verse, Right? It's about freedom, and it's freedom from this boss. I'm pretty convinced that's what God's telling me. That is a superstitious kind of way of meandering through life and attaching the Bible to it. We don't want to do that. We believe that God is talking to us, so let's get the flow of what Paul's saying. So, number one, you've been set free by Christ. It's free from the have-to to to the get-to. All right, number two is this. You, so there's God's part. You've been gifted this. Here's you. You remember your freedom status. Use your freedom for good and not for evil. Ben last week and our passage this week land in this middle section. Number three, this is where we're going in a little bit, is how to accomplish this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with some commands today that the text gives to us. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in in how to do that. I hope you're actually left a little bit with this. How do I do that? Here's my encouragement to you. Don't wait till next week. Read your Bible. Read the rest of the chapter. It's going to be all about walking by the Spirit, and it's going to to start fleshing that out. He's going to give us the how. He's going to give us the the, the pragmatist uh, application, right? Does this work? How does this work? What am I supposed to do with this? Okay. So so I want you to see kind of kind of where we are in the middle of all this. All right, our passage is short this morning, but there's just so much there. Galatians 5:13 uh, to 15. Follow along with me. It says this, "For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Do you see Christ's part and our part in this chapter? It's Christ who accomplishes our freedom, we respond to that. It's Christ who achieves. It's us who walk in that. Look back up at verse 5 for a moment. Here, here, here's just a breakdown of some of our response to this. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ is that it's free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So stand firm, yes. Submit, no. Now look at our passage today in verse 13. Sin, no. Serve, yes. So none of this. Hear this. Look at me. None of this command has to do with you achieving your freedom. That's God's part. That's the work of Christ. That's why we sing about it. That's why we talk about it. It's exactly what we just sang. Your grace has found me just as I am. How were you? You were not walking according to the will of God. You were not walking in freedom. None of you. I was born in America. Listen, two weeks ago. That doesn't matter. The work of achieving freedom is all Jesus. So that's done. That's accomplished. And that's finished. That's really important for us to keep that lens as we go forward with any of these commands. So then we get these. Stand firm, yes. Submit, no. Sin, no. Serve, yes. Okay. So as you're reading scripture, if you're ever seeing things that say, wow, that looks an awful lot like a command. You ought to highlight that. You ought to underline that. You ought to say in your mind, that's something I'm supposed to be doing. God, how am I supposed to flesh that out? Instead of just glossing over and thinking, oh, there's a command for other people to, to accomplish and walk in. But rather read it personally for yourself. All right. So put, put kind of a different way would be this. Paul is saying this. Christians, don't lose your freedom Gained by Christ. Don't lose your freedom, which is gained by Christ. He would call that legalism. He's been spending a lot of time on this. Today, it's a shift. These two verses are a shift. Don't lose your freedom, which was gained by Christ. Today, it's this. Don't abuse the freedom that you have that was given to you by Christ. What we would call that is license. And what you see is this. The legalist and the deeply immoral person running from every law that the legalist is trying to follow. And wisdom kind of invites us to walk between these two and not fall into one or the other. I want to talk about legalism just for a moment because um, these, these definitions will be helpful. Rather than just leaving it undefined. Uh, there's a great work by uh, John Piper. It's called "Brothers, We Are Not Professionals," and it's actually written to pastors. And it's just um, it's just an encouragement in 20, 30 chapters of just you know teach your congregation this and these different things. And and one of things he dives into is legalism. And I, I want to directly borrow from his two definitions because they were so helpful to me. Here's number one: uh, Legalism is the, the the terrible mistake of treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to show either our moral prowess and or to earn God's favor. Now, this is a danger that every one of us must guard against every single day. If you're taking notes, just jot down Romans 14.23 and make sure I'm not making this up. But here it is. Simply put, any behavior that is not from faith is legalism. It's you showing off your moral prowess or trying to achieve or earn your own righteousness. This is why when you attack a self-righteous person on their non-truthfulness or their non-faithfulness or their unpromptness or their lack of integrity with money or whatever it might be, that's why you get the full vengeance of someone because, because their whole world is built on them on that righteousness being kept intact, and more importantly, for the, for the veneer of that being kept intact. All right, here's number two. A second definition is this. Creating specific requirements of conduct, catch this, beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for membership in a local church. The two big ideas of these definitions, or the most important part of the definition, in my opinion, are in bold. So the first one, it's not that we chuck all biblical standards of conduct and regulations. It's that we don't try and do it by our own power for our own glory. Part two is this. It's not that we chuck um, all requirements of conduct, but it's that we go beyond the teaching of Scripture, the scriptures are very clear on some things. Here is how you are to live. Walk according to the manner of Jesus Christ in which you were called. Don't leave that path. The Bible's very clear about that. But it's when we go beyond that and we start adding on to things and making extra biblical requirements of people that we get into something called legalism. All right. Jesus, by the way, quick little aside on that. Uh, we're having a membership class after second service today. I hope you'll come if you're not a member. It's called exploring membership. So it's not something where you're totally convinced, but that you want to come and and say, hey, this is, I'm a regular attender, I'm thinking about uh, membership or whatever. Uh, If you are wanting to become a member, you can, you can do that, um, this afternoon. You can, you can be at the class and, and meet with an elder and, and we'll, we'll move forward with the process. But in your small groups this week, here's, here's part of your challenge. You're kind of being invited in to dream up and draft, okay, you have the Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, what would it look like to draft a membership requirement and how much of holy or personal conduct should be included in that? That's a challenge. I'll tell you, for months and months, actually for a couple of years, your elders, your leaders, your leaders, chewed on this and wrestled with this and prayed over this. And some churches, you will find almost nothing said about it at all. And we thought, wow, we see a lot of things in Scripture that say this is how you ought to walk. So that doesn't seem right. But then you'll go to other church membership pages, and you will literally read page after page after page, where they're really outlining every nook and cranny in detail. And I look at that, and to me, as that extreme, I say, wow, that, that acts like, like it's the elder's job to kind of police and monitor all of that. That seems to deny the sovereign will of God, and that also seems to start working its way into legalism. So today, if you were to come to the membership class, you're going to actually see a membership covenant. Here is what the elders covenant to you. Here is what the congregation covenants to us. And here's what this means for us to lock arms in this. In community group this week, you're going to wrestle through that a little bit and say, okay, how does Christian freedom look? And how are we supposed to to go after this? Jesus was always rooting out this absolutely ruthless poison called legalism. You read through Jesus over and over, and you will just see this pattern. He keeps going after this one over and over. And so Paul follows his master's lead, and he hits it hard over and over, coming after legalism. We've been spending some chapters on this, haven't we? You're free from that. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith expressing itself through love. I mean, he is just hitting this over and over and over because he knows it's an insidious poison. Jesus told the story of these two brothers. It's often called the story of the prodigal son. And in the story of the prodigal son, you've probably heard of it, there's the, the younger brother. What does the younger brother do? Squanders the wealth. On what? Yeah, not charity. He's not starting a nonprofit right, for orphans anywhere. He says, give me. Give me right now what's due me, Dad. You know what that's saying to Dad? You're as good as dead to me. I want want from you. I want the stuff from you. And he ran off and he went to a faraway place. Interesting. Faraway place. Get away where you're not accountable. You can start over. I've heard from some pastors in New York City that say New York City is a place that's filled with prodigals. They're running From the Midwest. They're running from home and they want to come gather and do what they want to do for a season. So here's the prodigal off in a far off country. We know all about the prodigal. He's the one who would fall into this category of license, right? Throw off all restraint and just live immorally. But it's really a story about two brothers. Remember the elder brother? Who gets all the spotlight? The younger brother. You know who the older brother is? The older brother, hear me, is the moral legalist. That's the older brother. The younger brother runs after immorality. The the, the younger brother does. The older brother runs after rule following. Here's what's interesting about both of them. They both reject the mercy of the father. The mercy of the father to the one was, man, it's all here for you. And he rejects that mercy by grabbing and going. The other one, the older brother, rejects the mercy of the father as the father says, come on in, celebrate with us. Your brother's back. And what does he do? You know how the story ends? We we, we never see him restored. We never see him come in and accept that. He's out pouting in the field. Why? Because he's kept all the rules in his mind perfectly. And he never got nothing from dad. The moral legalist and the immoral person are blood brothers. The Bible's crystal clear on something. Listen to this. Without repentance, both of them miss out on eternal life. Without repentance, neither one of them enjoy the feast, enjoy the fellowship of being right with dad again. It's just two different ways of expressing our own self-determination, our own self-will, our own independence. I'm going to run and do whatever I please, or I'm going to go and keep all the rules myself and, and get what's coming to me that way. And both of them miss out on the free gift that's being offered to them. I don't know if you know this, but there is an enemy fighting you. Even as we're sitting in church right here, there is an enemy fighting against us, as Christians, abiding in the vine, saying, God, I want to cling to you no matter what. Your relationship with Christ is under attack. If you're here and you're seeking and you're wanting to discover answers, there is an enemy fighting against that. Now, I can't find this anywhere exactly in the scriptures, and I wanted to be really careful not to make light of this, because he's not a little guy with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. That's a caricature. And if you ever come face-to-face with evil, it's... Frightening. It's not something to be trifled with, but for the sake of, um, for the sake of uh, illustration, I'll say this: I think Satan knows Judo. I'm not totally convinced, but it but 's possible. Rob, would you come up here and help me for a second? Thanks. Come on up here, buddy. Give it up for Rob. Come on. Hey, man. How are you doing? he's like, man, I wish the pastor didn't know my name, because then he wouldn't do this. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start right here, okay? And um, and I want you, um, we're going to do a little judo. Do you know judo? Good. That's really helpful, because I don't either. I just like Wicca studied it, and so I know like this much of judo, okay? Um, so neither one of us are, are judo experts, um, but I'm going to have Rob charge me, okay? And uh, that's pretty cool, huh? He didn't think he was going to come to church and charge the pastor. Um, all right. You ready? Okay. All right. Pause. Pause. Good job. Now, give it up. Give it up for Rob. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. Two quick things. If you're ever public speaking and you're going to have someone come charge you, always make sure. Did you notice me look around the room? There's a handful of people I did not pick right away. I picked Rob because I thought I could take him. And and I like, Rob, that you gave a real charge, not like a little wimpy fake one, okay? Here's what, here's what judo is all about, okay? Now, some of you are like, Dave, you don't know what judo's about. You just studied Wikipedia for five seconds. But here's what it's about in general. Part of judo is this. As Rob's coming, do you see what I did? I took his momentum, I took all his energy, and I threw him off balance by using that and turning it against him. Do you see what I just did? I mean, in a blink of an eye. Rob's like, I got this old dude. And in an instant, he knew I could have thrown him down, right? That's judo. Now, the reason I say Satan knows judo is this. He will take your energy, your momentum, running headlong out of freedom. I'm free in Christ. No longer am I bound to all these crazy religious rituals that my parents shoved down my throat and my religious school teachers and my religious... Leaders at church and whatever else told me I had to do it. was a list of do's and don'ts. I'm free from all that. What Satan would love nothing more is what I've seen in the lives of a lot of different people. They run out of being a legalist right into license. Do you see that? They come rushing out of, there's nothing I have to do anymore. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. I don't have to do anything anymore and they run right into doing whatever they want. Sometimes right into an immoral lifestyle. Gee, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that actually says, I, I can't do this, so I'm going to do it. And pretty soon they find themselves in, in an even more uh, insidious, perhaps, bondage than what they just ran out of. Let me say this about our enemy. Our enemy is thrilled if you're over here in the legalist camp or if you've run right past middle ground and you're over here in the immoral license camp. You are a weak, defaming Christian if you live by the impulses of your flesh for this world only. That paints a terrible picture of God our Father. You are a weak and impotent and driving other people away from the generous merciful, good father that we have if you're an uptight legalist over here. And Satan would love nothing better than to keep the church in one of these two places. And wisdom says, Jesus invites us, walk right here. Don't run from one to the other. He's cautioning against overreacting. Yes, you are free, but don't run headlong into whatever you want to do. You know what we call that in society? We call it anarchy. Anarchy comes from two words. No rules. In my lifetime, I got to watch the L.A. riots. Not long ago, we saw some stuff going on in Oakland where it looked like there was no rules. Here's what people act like if they think they're going to get away with smashing a window and carrying out electronics, right? Anarchy is not a good place. Paul is teaching an apparent paradox. I hope you feel the stress of this. As you read... Galatians a little bit. You're almost like, wow. Well, you're almost paying yourself in a corner. It's a square peg and a square peg in a round hole. Paul, how, how are you going to justify these two? On the one, he's saying, now you're justified. Um, you're you're not justified by the law. You're free from it. But almost in the same breath, he says, now the whole law is summed up in this one word: love the neighbor as yourself. You'd be tempted to say, well, who, what do I care about the law? There are no rules. There are no laws. Peter echoes this same verse. If you're taking notes, write this down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Paul and Peter say the same message. You're free, but not to live however you want. We get the first part of this, don't we? Don't we see that freedom is used as a cover-up for evil all the time? Politicians, money-making schemes, uh, it's amazing how the free vote, the free marketplace produce all kinds of evil. So freedom can be a cover-up for evil, we get that. But what does he mean that we are free but we should live as servants? I mean, aren't servants just told what to do all day long? Isn't that what a servant is? So how free is that to be a servant? Peter and Paul um, have access to Jesus. And so do we. God's given us, through the Gospels, access to Jesus. Not just to walk with him for, for three, three and a half years, but to walk with him for a lifetime. Remember what he said to his disciples? It's always puzzled me. He says, it's better for you if I go away. I mean, when I read that, I go, how could that be better? I've got Jesus in the flesh right here with me. But he says, it's better for you disciples if I go away because I'm going to send a helper. The Spirit of Christ is able to be in all places, through all of time, in every situation. So we have access to Jesus in the same way that Peter and Paul, who we're learning from today, had access to Jesus. Not in the same way, in a slightly different way. But in Jesus, we see, catch this, the most free person who ever lived and one who was a slave to the will of the Father. So when you take this apparent square peg and try to put it in a round hole, you see Jesus, a totally free person who submitted himself completely to the will of the Father. So what does it look like to live a slave-free life? Let me just kind of close our time off with this. I want to just share with you a couple of pictures from the Gospels. This is accessible to you all the time. Most of you have one of these sitting somewhat nearby. Okay? Probably um, the Bible is more accessible to us in more versions than in, in any point in history. Right? So accessible to us at any time is, is what I'm about to do. It's free for us. It's, it's, it's available to us. Any of you see the Karate Kid movies? Anyone? Raise your hand. You can admit it. Now, there's an old version that I grew up with, right? And there's a new version in, I think, 2010 where it's Will Smith's kid. And he's he's the guy, okay? Now, the, the, the beauty of the Karate Kid movies is this. In the first one, remember what uh, Mr. Miyagi told his, his student? What was it? Wax on, wax on? Wax off, right? And what does the little kid keep thinking? He's like, man, this is like childhood slave labor. He just keeps, I want to learn karate, right? Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. In the new version, this was just on in our house recently, and I came walking in, I'm like, this just seems vaguely familiar. I was in a different room, and came wandering in, and here's Will Smith and I'm like, this is the karate kid. It's a new version of it. In the new version, it's jacket off, jacket on. And then he hangs it up and drops it. He does some other things with it. But, but basically, wax on, wax off, jacket on. See how clever that is? It's pretty easy to rewrite a movie. I think I could do that. And the delicious part of the movie in both scenes is where the kid keeps getting more and more frustrated. What does this have to do with anything? We want to learn karate. And the delicious moment is when you realize someone comes at it, and what does the kid do? Wax on, wax off. He just did karate. He did it instinctively, right? Right? And jacket off, jacket on, same thing. His teacher came at him, and he knew right what to do because he had been doing these small menial things. When you watch those movies, remember this, that's borrowed. That's borrowed from Christ. Let me show you. Jesus is walking with people. What do they want to learn? Not karate. They want to say, we, we we want the Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, we're going to be the karate studs. We're going to be the black belts of this region. We will no longer be under rule, right? That's what they wanted. Let's get to that part. The master comes along and says things like this, John twelve twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wax on, wax off. Here's another one, John 2.19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in just three days? Jack it off, jack it on. This is Jesus' teaching. Now, John... Writing this, catch this, after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, adds this little footnote in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In real time, they're the students who don't quite understand the menial work of wax on, wax off. But in the same way, there's this great moment where they go, man, we get it looking back on all of this now, that makes sense. Destroy this temple. Oh, that was his body he was talking about. Oh, he's preparing us for something way bigger than than winning a match against our oppressors here on earth. He's preparing us for the eternal kingdom. I get it now. If we want to learn what it is to be gloriously free and yet willing slave to the Father, we look to our master. Verse 6 of of chapter 5 says this. It's faith working through love is what counts for anything. As you read the Gospels, remember this. Everything you see Jesus doing is perfect love. Being done from total freedom. So study him, I would say yes. But more than just study him, which leaves him in a book, walk with him, talk with him, listen for him, fellowship with him, worship him. If you get stuck at the study phase, it's a distant relationship. John 13, he says this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Catch this, just as I have loved you, so you love each other. All right, here's the two stories. Turn to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, I'm going to take you to two very familiar stories if you've been uh, in the Bible at all or been around church much. This one is often called the story of the rich young ruler. Look and learn from our master how he loves this young man. Give you a second to get there. Mark chapter 10. And we'll start in verse 17. It says this, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, take Galatians and overlay it on this story. Isn't this a fantastic picture of Galatians? The law is what man can accomplish. What was the man accomplishing? In his mind, he had accomplished the law perfectly all the way back as far as he can remember. From the time I was a little kid, I've been right on track with all of these. Defraud, check, honor mom and dad perfectly. Right. That's law. Jesus is coming along and talking about something else. Here's what God can accomplish. Jesus does something with, with this young man, and that is um, he had every right to attack this guy's self-righteousness. Do, do, do we all agree that the young man's a little bit prideful and self-righteous? Okay. He doesn't see an accurate picture of himself. What Jesus does is he lovingly comes along and he's going he's gonna to pull the rug out from under the guy. But he's going to do it in a much more indirect way. He could have shamed him right there. The guy knelt in front of him. He's on his way out of town. He catches up to him, kneels in front of him. So this has kind of stopped the procession, and there's a lot of people around. We're in a shame um, honor culture. Do you see how big of a thing that would have been to just attack him right then and there? He doesn't attack the fact that, well, actually, last week, here's how you didn't live up to the law perfectly. Instead, he's going to go lovingly pull the rug out from under him in a more subtle way. He's going to go in kind of indirectly through the back door and say, oh, great. Then I just have two more things for you, right? Sell your possessions. Oh, and by the way, come and follow me. A person who has great possessions has a calendar full of how to get more possessions or how to care for possessions if those possessions are your idol. Wasn't Jesus going after the idol in his life? What's interesting is a lot of people take this and they they make it about money. It's not bad to be rich and be a Christian. There's people in the Gospels that we see of that, and there's people today that are funding kingdom work because of that. This isn't about money. This is about idols. Jesus is going after the idol in the young man's heart. He went away disheartened because he had a lot of stuff. And his schedule was such that he couldn't go and follow Jesus. He had things to tend to. So he went right after that. See if this rings at all true in the Silicon Valley. Stuff and schedule. Hmm, Is that a wrestling match for any of us in this room? Is that an idol for anyone that we work with that we live near in this area? Man, that has a hold on a lot of people here. Let me take you to one more. Um, Jesus didn't need anything from this rich guy. He was free to love him. And yet, he did only what his father would say to do. Do you see that? He's free, and yet he's enslaved not to serve himself, but to serve the father. Uh, John chapter 4. Let's go to one more. This doesn't mean that as we read that story, we look just to find people who are young and rich and in some position of authority. There's these freedoms, there's these, these this, this manner of life, this way of life that Jesus is showing us, that he's modeling for us, that as we keep soaking in the Gospels and watching how Jesus interacts with people, we get to understand in the moment how to interact with people. Here's Jesus with the woman at the well, John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It says this, it says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't want to do chores anymore. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, you have, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now verse 19's rich. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. They're having this conversation about water. He just lays bare. Do you see what Jesus does? He's a little bit playful in the opening part. This is absolutely scandalous that he's there, a single guy, talking to a woman with a promiscuous reputation, obviously, who was there at high noon, not to be with the other ladies, and all this and that, and here he is talking to them, and all of a sudden, he is, he is just, he is just reeling her in. And lovingly, he's laying out, at just the right moment, her deepest thirst where she's been going to quench her thirst. And she takes the conversation, you probably know the story, she takes it in a totally different direction. I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship regulations. That's way too close to home. I don't want to talk about that. Let's go talk about religious things. That's a lot safer. Hey, where should we worship? Let's go over here. Don't you see that as you, as you walk your way through the Gospels, as you see Jesus with people, he's freely loving people. I love that it says he was wearied from his journey. He was wiped out. What's he doing right here? It's not about him getting a drink. Serve me. I'm tired. I'm the Messiah. I'm a teacher. I'm a rabbi. You're a half-breed. Let's get some water over here. He's wearied from his journey. What does he do? He freely gives himself. Isn't that beautiful? He freely gives them himself even when it's inconvenient. When I'm tired, I say, look, I'm really tired. I need a break. I'm not going to be at my best. I need to rest. Here's Jesus giving himself freely. The indirect way, the gently kind of teasing out where she's at way that he has with this. Jesus doesn't need to kind of barf out rules and regulations. He doesn't need to just shove out there, I've told you the gospel, take it or leave it. He loves people. And so he freely enters into them and starts starts to draw them out into conversation. Over and over and over he does this. Recognize this. When Jesus is angrily rebuking taking the time to make a whip to drive out money changers from the religious legalists who are making a profit off the sheep of Israel, that's love. When Jesus goes and does a healing and and tells them, don't tell anyone about it, that's love. When Jesus shows up at a regular meal, and just hangs out at a pretty non-special deal, that's love. When he attends their weddings and their parties, that's love. So as we read the Gospels, we see what it looks like. We get a picture painted. This is what it looks like to freely love people, to freely give to people, to walk this line between, I have to do this because I'm a Christian, or, I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever I want. And Jesus takes us and just walks right through the middle of that. He says, here's what a totally free person does. I don't need them to think good things about me. I don't need the religious veneer of people thinking things. And yet, I'm going to do only what the Father tells me to do. I'm going to say only what the Father tells me to say. I'm going to willingly put myself in that place. You are watching love in action. I love the way uh NIV expresses uh, uh chapter or verse um 5 in in Galatians it says faith expressing itself through love. James 2 says this show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. All right, we're going to spend most of our time next week looking starting to kind of look at at how to do this, but let me just close with this. The action item for this week is be a real friend. Be a real friend. Where do you do this? You start at home. It's interesting to me sometimes when people come, I'm in a position at a church where people come and they think, I'm going to talk to the pastor because I want to serve. I want to do something great. I want to love a lot of people. I watched a documentary on something, and I want to get involved in things like that. You know what often I will ask them? I will ask them this question. Are you loving and serving your family? Oftentimes, people are stopped dead in their tracks with that question. Because the reality is this. If they want to come and do some great service and love in some extravagant way, I already know, let's not waste the money and fly overseas and go take you to that place and let it just be a little show for a week if you're not already doing the invisible, unglorious task of just loving and serving well at at home. 1 Timothy 5.8 is this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Elders who are called to shepherd the church are challenged with this. If you're not managing your own household well, why on earth would God entrust you the things of God? So you want to know where to be a real friend? Start at home. Some of you are like, dang, that bums me out. I wish I could just prep for this and do it once a week at a missions trip. I wish I could just do this on Thursday night as a community group leader. I wish I could just put this on for a little bit. At home? Do you know how daily that is, Dave? Yes, I do. And that's the point. So where to begin loving and serving freely, not siphoning off of people, is at home. So many people want uh, things from uh, from the church. In fact, the the church, I don't know if you know this, but, but part of your dollars and people sometimes give specifically to this is called a benevolence fund. A benevolence fund is to help those people who are in a tight spot. They've lost their job. Something devastating has happened to them financially in some way, shape, or form. All the time, across this way in the hallway or in the office, we get people who will stop by and they will need a handout of some sort. They will need a help. What's my question to them? What about your family? I ask them, what about your family? And sometimes they'll tell me, I'm estranged from my family. Well, tell me about that a little bit. Okay, we'll talk about that. Second question is this. We're a fairly small church. I look at a lot of faces. I've never seen you before. Do you have a church family? Well, I'm estranged from my church family too. Okay. Um, And then we kind of carry on the conversation. If, hear this, if the family were doing its job really well and weren't splintered and having issues, um, a vast majority... Of the needs that people have could just be met by family. Some people don't have opportunities to have help because they're estranged with their family. Some of that is just the, the punishment of them willfully not fighting through that and making those amends. Now, if the, uh, sometimes, many times, people, uh, are brought into the church who their biological family is a train wreck. Do you love that God sets the lonely in families? Some of you can attest to this. Then My spiritual family, this is is more real to me, actually, than, than my biological family. And that's true for all of us. We're going to be together for eternity. God sets you in a spiritual family. Now, the church ought to be caring for its own. Much of the needs that people come and ask for the church for a handout or ask for the government for a handout, if things were being done according to the way the Bible lays it out, wouldn't be needed. Those needs would already be met. Start at home. Start in your neighborhood with actual neighbors. We're going to get into the how in a bit, but let me just say this on how. Write down Galatians 6.2. We're going to get to this in a few weeks. He says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here he is bringing up law again, interestingly. You want to know how? Start lifting a finger. Start bearing other people's burdens. You know how you find out what real burdens are? You ask, and then you do something really important. You stop talking, and you listen. If we really listen to one another in this room, you would discover all kinds of need and burden that you could help with. We just start bearing one of those burdens. That's how. How about when? When is now. Right now. And I don't even mean now like, oh, Dave means this week. I mean right now. In a couple of minutes, we're going to close and dismiss. I mean right now. Let's love and serve. Let's be free to really love each other without wanting anything from them. We have a clear conscience before God. We don't need to be made right by being nice to people. What are we doing with that? We're just using them for our own righteous buildup at that point. We're free from that. Doesn't the world need this? Doesn't the world need an army of people who are free to love in the way that that Jesus loved? The church does something interesting, and that is this. We provide some opportunities collectively that none of you could do individually. But the problem is, sometimes people lean on the church so much and say, well, my church does this. And so, by extension, I do that. I don't actually go do it, because I don't want to interact with the people. I'm not a people person. But I write a check. I tithe, I give, and then we go do these things. There's a problem when a church takes over all of that ourselves and we organize all of the benevolence and all of the love and all of the service because it robs all the places God has you. The church isn't in the firehouse. Jim Cook individually is in the firehouse, right? However, the church is going to gather and have some opportunities to minister one of the opportunities we have in the back, this is a small, tiny baby step, but we have some kids that could be sponsored by World Vision. That's us just partnering with, a, with a, a, another group um, to do something bigger than we could do on our own. Let me pray, and as we do, um, uh, as this first song goes, we'll be taking the offering. Um, the offering here at NBC every week is a beautiful picture of exactly the principle that's being talked about. You, hear me, you don't have to give. Isn't that good news? Because what could we pay back God? How much would be enough? 10%? Come on. You don't have to give. In fact, you're actually commanded. It's, It's give freely. Give joyously. Give because you desire to give, not because you have to. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us here in this room. We need your grace and mercy. Some of us are so prone to be the younger brother and just run headlong into doing whatever we want to do and throw off all authority, labeling it as bad and oppressive. And God, some of us struggle so much with performance and just checking off some things and feeling close to you when we attend conferences and celebrate with the church and do good, quiet times. Would you free us, God, and then help us to walk in that freedom and not abuse it by biting and devouring one another or serving ourselves. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.